0: Hello, humans. Welcome to another episode of the How to Human podcast.
1: This is Trisha from Nehalem, Oregon. To my younger self, I'd say you are surviving beautifully.
0: And when you don't feel well and no doctors or adults can help you understand, know that you're growing wise and strong and one day you will love your
1: own company and you will have answers to your questions and then more questions. I would try not to warn my younger self from the mistakes I made, so not to rob her of their value. And I would tell her the learning is what counts.
0: (laughs) That's a message from one of our listeners, and it's one of my favorite new additions to the podcast is playing these. And I want you to send yours. Send us your message, your insight, your truth. The instructions are on our Patreon page. And we do that to try and tempt you into becoming a patron and support us financially. But i made everything publicly visible so if you really have something to say and can't justify supporting us you can still say it and that's why we wouldn't make good pharmaceutical executives we just give everything away so go do it go to patreon.com hello human and send us your message so we have a stockpile of these things read the instructions leave a voicemail and while you're there consider pledging a buck a month or whatever feels right that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash HelloHuman. And while you're at it, helping us out, like us on Instagram and Facebook. It's the same as our website, HelloHumans.co. And it's important when publicists or agents are looking at our program, they're going to look at how many followers we have and we want to get the best people we can. So you're really helping the program in a number of ways as well as giving us. Anyway, let's get on to the show. At one point or another, we've all learned the painful lesson that life isn't fair. We all have struggles, but some unfortunately have it much harder than others. Surviving means finding a way to live even though the odds are against them. And thriving means finding the strength to keep their head up and keep moving forward no matter where they started or no matter what they're up against. Our guest today is an undeniable part of American history and is a personal hero of mine who demonstrates what can happen when you refuse to give up refuse to live in fear, and refuse to accept the way things are. Today's episode is my conversation with Melba Beals, who became the center of national attention just for being Black and wanting a better education. She was one of nine Black students who decided to integrate into an all-white Southern high school, which meant walking through a sea of people who didn't want her there on a daily basis and showing up the next day to do it again. She knows struggle like I will never know, and she has made it through with a smile on her face, a love for humanity, and a dream of equality, and the will to keep on going. So sit down and take notes, because if anyone is going to teach us on how to persevere, it's Dr. Melba Beals. Melba, thank you for joining us on the program.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: I like to start off by hearing how people describe themselves rather than introduce them, because I think it's more interesting. And so for anyone who doesn't know who you are, Who are you?
1: Some days that's a big question. Uh, I am a Melba Beals. Um, Many people describe me in many ways. I'm Dr. Melba Beals, very proud of that. I have a doctorate in international multicultural education. I'm a mom, first before anything else. Uh, A Christian all the time, 24-7. Someone who started her life out based in Christianity and who's only alive today because of it. And then uh, I have spent my life committed to civil rights. I started out in Little Rock, Arkansas, born in 1941. I'm 76. And so in 1941, for an African-American to live in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, was a wild and interesting experience. Uh, I was an odd child, I would say. I'm I'm not your ordinary human being. Um, If I had been my own parents, I would have been nuts, but... uh, So I would say above all else, I'm an interesting human being, and I love humanity, and I'm fun to be with. That's what I say about myself.
0: Thank you. I I think one of the major accomplishments of your life, if accomplishment is the right word, is that you are forever a piece of American history by being one of the Little Rock Nine, and I'm curious to ask you some questions on that. But before we get started, I know there is a full life that... Led up to that. And I'm curious about where you started up until you became one of the Little Rock Nine.
1: You know, it's funny you should ask that because at 76, I've just written a book about that called March Forward Girl. And March Forward Girl, what I tell you is that the first thing I ever remember in my life is fear, just being afraid of everything. And I remember going to the store with my parents, and home, my parents were were, were well-spoken, their shoulders were straight, their chin was up high, and they were very proud human beings telling me what public decorum was like. My grandmother or mother could say the word decorum, and I'd stand up straight. You know, they'd make me polish my shoes every morning. I mean, as a child, I was very well disciplined to church three or four nights a week, thank you very much, and early on Sunday morning. And you know, as a child, I noticed first off that my parents were so wonderful at home. They were strong, and they lectured me, and they told me how to be a great human being, and that God loved me. And you know, our retu- routine at home was very, very ordinary, but very Christian-based. But once we got to the white grocery store around the corner, they became idiots, uh, bowing down you their nose. Uh, uh, they would let white people step in line in front of us in the grocery line. It would take like hours to pay for this can of calumet b- baking powder. Because, you know, we get up to where the cashier was, and then somebody comes come step in. And I noticed that in the grocery store, whenever we were with white people, they took over. Um, If we were in line to get some meat. No, 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 no. no. Which was going to cut for them first. Uh Called them ain't he, a nigger in front of me. And said, nigger, you're not ready to, you're not going to reach out for that. You're not going to touch that package, are you? If you touch something, nobody else will ever want to buy it. And I was waiting for my parents and my grandparents to talk back because they'd been at home telling me how wonderful we were and how God loved us all equally and all that stuff. All righty, let me see you practice. And none of that happened. And I was really upset because here the people who were supposed to protect me couldn't protect themselves, right? So as a child, I was very odd. first of all, because I had whooping cough. My grandmother set me on her lap and she read to me and she made me do math and all that at night instead of sleeping, right? And so I was a pretty bright child, pretty interesting child and very psychic child. Uh, so much so that grandmother said, shh, don't say anything to anybody. Just write what you think down in a diary. And so the time leading up to going to Central High School is what compelled me to go to Central High School. By the time I was three years of age, I was sitting in the front yard in a red wagon because grandma said that the stork brought me, so I said, all righty then, going to sit out there when the stork comes by to bring somebody else, going to wave myself out of here, ask for a ride, right? Then by the time I was five, I saw the Ku Klux Klan, these white riders, hang a black man in my church. My church, which was my sanctuary, which was every the only place of safety I had to go, they come into this place and hang. And I'm five years of age, and I'm watching this man's feet dangle, and I'm hearing his throat grind when that rope tightened. And I have never, ever, ever forgotten what that sound was like. And so when it was time to raise your hand, teacher said, who would like to go to Central High School? Well, during my lifetime, I had been driven around that school all the time. It was eight square blocks in diameter. My school was not even one. This was a beautiful, it ranked 10th in the nation as an institution. Every year we'd get this slimy equipment, we black people would, from the other schools, white schools, uh, used typewriters, three-legged tables, that kind of thing. Slimy, old, dirty, snotty books. And they got the new stuff. And so, yeah, I wanted to go to Central High School. Because on Sundays, my mom would drive me around and around Central High School. We'd go for a Sunday ride and we'd have a soda or an ice cream cone. We'd go for a ride in the white neighborhood because it was where we couldn't go if it was dark and where if they caught us, we couldn't go if it was light. So that's what we did for a Sunday treat was go looking where the white folks lived, right? And so Central High School was somewhere I wanted to go for 10 years before I ever got there.
0: Wow, there's a lot to unpack there.
1: Yeah. So there were a lot of reasons why when that teacher said, who among you is in this neighborhood and who among you wants to go to Central High School? Despite what I knew to be a risk, not as great as it turned out to be, who knew you'd need the 101st Airborne? Who knew you'd need armed soldiers to go to school? Nobody did. I certainly didn't. Don't sit there saying, you know, everybody says, oh, you're a heroine. No, I'm not. I'm just somebody who wanted to go to Central High School because the education would be better. And I figured if I went to Central High School, I'd get the hell out of Little Rock. I'd get a scholarship to, you know, one of the big eight and I'd be gone, gone, gone. That was my plan to get out of Little Rock.
0: It's almost surreal. It's hard to sink in that somebody can be killed in front of you in broad daylight based off the color of their skin. I'm still kind of hung up on that, that. It's
1: a new concept. Although it still happens, you know, in Mississippi less than three years ago. What the white guys do in the bars there is they get out on a Friday evening and they drag black men behind horses, some of them. It was one happened, I think, less than three years ago. And that still happens places in the South, you know. And I went to do, I do sessions sometimes with police departments or with uh, organizations. I had a man tell me probably... Five, six years ago, I was doing a session on equality. And he was one of like three or 400 people in the audience. And he said to me, he raised his hand. And I said, how can I help you? And he said, you know, I come from a place and, and, and you know, wherever it was from, North Carolina, wherever. where we dragged and there's like you on the ground. I, I said, well, you know what, sweetie? It's not happening to me. I said, see these two guys who came with me? I said, we anticipated that this could happen. And so they're both so loaded. That does not happen to me. I said, beside which, I'm a little pudgy and I don't drag well. So I, <laughs> I, I have not planned to do that. You know, that's not, says, let me look at, no, that's not in my plan for today. That's all I said, you know.
0: Yeah. Back, and I said, why oh, don't
1: you come eat lunch with me? And did he? He did.
0: One of the things I'm still thinking about is how your parents who are strong and intelligent at home. mm mm-hmm. And then almost have to play dumb, play to the expectations and rules that white people had set for the area. How did that affect you when it came to your own personal strength and Mm. your own personal belief in yourself? Five,
1: six, seven, eight, what are you? You're frightened. Who's in charge? Your parents. Who takes care of you? Your parents. And so, you know, again, I want to say I was a weird child. I said to them, look here. If the white people are in charge, they own the buses, the grocery stores, the schools, everything. Then why don't we let them be in charge six months a year and we'll take over from say June to December. Because if if, if what you say is right in the religious category, God loves us all equally, what went wrong with this plan, right? Good. I mean, why, why? And so I would ask them these questions and they would say, shh, shh, you know, go write it down. And people at church, people would say, Then give my parents like a dozen eggs or a pound of bacon or whatever, if somebody had let me read for them. In other words, give them my psychic uptake of what was going to happen in the future. And my grandma said, no, that was against God's will. And she, she started me to say, don't say anything to adults. Nothing. So I was a very, very interesting child. Very interesting child. In that I was much older in my head. And I knew a lot about what was going on. And I knew, wait a minute, if these people are running around, pulling the shades down at six o'clock every night, five o'clock, four o'clock in winter, because the Klan's going to ride through this neighborhood and hang somebody and burn somebody, and ain't nobody going to do nothing about it. Just get your guns out one night. I was also very angry at the people in church, because there's probably 75 people in that church. And half of those people were men. So my theory even then was, okay, so five of you would die. There's only five guys in white sheets with a gun. Let's try and get three of them before we go down. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this is how I am today still at 76. I may be on a walker, but, you know, let's take out five before we go down. Let's not let somebody walk into my church. Right?
0: It, it speaks to how petrified people were.
1: And how convinced they were. You see that they weren't equal, and I. I somebody said to me yesterday. I, I speak across the country, and the other paragraph that's always brought up is this paragraph that I had in my book, "Warriors Don't Cry," which is about going to Central High School. It was one of the first big books I wrote, and in this book, I say black folks are not born knowing that they're not equal citizens. Nobody comes into your room when you're like a month old and says, "Say, Melba, you know what? Your skin is black." And it means that you're going to have to live this way. You can't vote and la, 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 la. You know, no one does that. Instead, your self esteem is swept from you teaspoon by teaspoon, day by day, as you see how you are unequal. You see the name white and colored written on the, you know, white is on the prettier uh, water fountains and color is on the icky ones. You see white on the, Uh, nice bathrooms with the daisies on them, and downstairs around the corner in the dirty, you know, is the colored bathroom, right? Everything was separate. Don't forget, I grew up in a separate territory. And you see those people in their white sheets, crispy iron on Saturday night in their cars with signs driving down your neighborhood. Signs saying, go back to Africa, nigger. Things of this nature, which are unwelcoming. So I felt... Think about this for a moment. From the age of zero, I felt unwelcome, right? I'm where I shouldn't be. Where should I really be? I used to say to God, where do I belong? Is what you ask yourself. Where will I be welcome, right? And that's been my question for my entire life. You can't get over that question. See, because where can I go that I'm gonna be safe? Where can I go that people will speak to me with respect? Where can I go, for example, when I went down shopping? And and the interesting thing for me as a child was that my adult parents taught me, you know, you every day they were drilling it into you, to stay alive. If a white person walks towards you and you're on the sidewalk, step off. Now, in the meantime, you've had me spend an hour, hour and a half every single day of my life polishing my brown and white saddle shoes. Those are my favorite shoes till today, you know. I love the brown and white saddle shoes. And so I would have spent an hour, hour and a half, polishing my just right, get all the lines right. Grandma would check them. But then if I was walking down the road and a white people, a white person walked toward me and there was mud, I had to go off into the mud, Mm. okay? And uh, if a white person slapped you, don't hit back. Do not look a white person in the eye. Remember Emmett Till, do you remember that boy in, in, in the South? Who's the name best in history? Kid called Emmett Till, I think he was 14 or 15, was killed, torched, burned to death because he did what? He looked a white woman in the eye.
0: And what year was that?
1: Don't remember the exact year, probably 1951, 52, something like that. Wow. I look away on the net. But yeah. So he was killed and he lied, burned in his coffin. He said, for looking up that, look up that, yeah. And so, you know, hey, what can I tell you? Life was a bit rough where I come from, for me, it was. So when you say, why did I go to Central High School? Because I wanted out. If the store couldn't take me out, my folks refused to leave. Give me any ticket out you got, I'll take it. And going to Central High School, I believe to have been that ticket. You know, everybody said, well, why do you want to go to Central High School? Is it because you want to sit by white folks? No. My grandmother used to tell me all the time, God loves you. And this is why I've survived, because I had really strong parents, really strong mother and grandmother who said, God loves you. Hey, Melba, he's got a picture of you on his refrigerator, right? Yeah. Every day they'd say, you're so pretty. God has a picture. Because everybody else, you know, all the white people say, you're so ugly. You're an animal. You're an ape. You smell. You've got no brain, right? Well, I knew that wasn't true. I was pretty much aware of what was going on, you know. And so I was very aware. I've always, all my life, been very aware of what's going on around me. you know, And that is advantage, but it's also disadvantage, you know. But so I wanted to go to Central High School. So that's why people said, why were you willing to go back when you needed soldiers to take you when you were threatened every day? People would acid in your eyes. They stuck a flag post in your back. Uh, to this day, when it's damp outside, the back of my heels hurt because this guy called Jack Sontag walked on the back of my heels every day. You know, it was something called the White Citizens Council, which was the women of the Klan organized the students and taught them how to walk on your heels. So he it was his job to pick me up at every class and walk on my heels, so it damaged my Achilles tendons. You know, wow. And so, um, so I went because I wanted a better life. That's why.
0: So the Little Rock Nine refers to nine volunteers. Right. Who were who...
1: chosen. There were originally 116 students chosen. And that whole process in itself is a book because in the beginning, Little Rock only, Arkansas only wanted to meet the 1954 Brown versus Topeka decision at a very minimal level. They did not want to really integrate. And so what they did was they sent people out, white people out to the black community to tell people, don't go. You know, even though we're going to offer you this chance, I don't, don't go to our school. And in addition to which, we'll build you a school of your own. And they did indeed build a black school. Right. Right. So that dissuaded a lot of black people because something like uh, many more, let's say many more than 116. I think it's something like a thousand kids, more than a thousand people would have been available to come. But originally 116 went, you know, said they were available. But but after the Klan started threatening people and people got into all that trouble physically and every day you started doing mobs, people took the hint. They said, wait a minute, we're not going.
0: And only nine were left.
1: And only nine were left.
0: And so you hinted that you knew it was a big deal, but you didn't quite grasp what a huge deal it was going to be and so
1: i couldn't grasp what a huge deal because at 15 do you know you don't understand death not really my relatives have died but you know there they are They're a little bit cold do they come back later i don't really get it totally you don't i mean i didn't get anything at 15 you're kind i was kind of humming around after johnny mathis doesn't he look good today i mean this mind you i'm 76 and I mean, it's fascinating to me that Pat Boone, Johnny Mathis, all those people are still around, because when I was little, they were my heroes and I was dancing to them. I was listening to my hit parade on television and I was being a 15-year-old. So I don't understand, nor do I believe that people can be that rude to each other. My grandmother has always said decorum in public, I figured white folks were Christians, they were gonna be, you know, angry. But I figured after they got to know me, I was cute, I had a ponytail, I was clean, I was bright. I mean, I really had pretty good self-esteem to be an African-American. My mother and my grandmother, my mother, who was a school teacher, by the way, and spoke six languages. My mother was, was incredibly brilliant as well. She had a very, very high IQ and perfect memory. And so she was something to behold. You know, Now that I'm older, I realize that she was incredibly brilliant. And any of that kind of mastery I have, I got from these ladies. My father was an expert on math. And so these people were interesting African-American people who passed that on to me. And they, they really, really worked hard at making me see that although you live in this place where you're being made fun of, you are important to God and to yourself, you know. And so I wanted to go. And so I put my hand up. And you have to figure out that there were nine of us but 1900 white folks.
0: yeah and the the soldiers you referred to are because the governor of arkansas was publicly against it the police weren't going to help you and so i think it was eisenhower
1: who sent the
0: who sent right the airborne soldiers right. so when you arrive at the school it's going to be kind of a reality check
1: unwelcoming
0: of what you're in for
1: total reality check because we, the first day we jump out of the car, go on the side of the building, get in the building, and there, there are parents marching up the house, down the hall spitting on us. Nigger go home, nigger go home. And in order to save our lives, we had to be dragged into the school office. Cause all, First of all, in front, there's thousands of people in the mob screaming, right? And there's policemen lying down the street. Well, you know, the very, very first day we went there, we couldn't get in. Yeah. And we were my mother and I were chased home. We were almost hanged. And that's when you have the picture of Elizabeth Eckford by herself. None of us got in. She was in front of the school, and she's being chased by a mob. And a white couple stood up and took her home on the bus. But then the second time we made an attempt at the behest of the, the government, because the court ruled that we had to go back. So we went back the second time, and uh, this time into the side of the building. We actually got inside the school. Uh, But the parents who were out front, there were just thousands of people outside screaming. It sounded to me like the rodeo, you know, just huge football game. And these people were, mind you, we've got a two, Central High School's two blocks long. It's eight blocks in the So two down, two across, two back up, see? And so um, there's this mob in front. And as we're going in the side door, we hear this mob. And the police are taking us in the side door, and we get in the building at a decree of the president and the governor. But the problem is the decree of the courts. With it. Let's get clear here. The courts wanted us to go in. But we get in, and uh, there no welcome wagon. Let me reassure you of that. And parents are loose in there, and they're running up and down the halls being nasty. And people are throwing eggs on us. And people are calling us names and they take us into the office and they see you want the principal is nasty. The vice principal is nasty. People were ugly. Adults were ugly to us. Teachers were ugly to us. So now we're in enemy territory, it comes clear to me. Every day. Every single day of our lives. Every moment of our lives. It's, when you're in that kind of situation, it becomes momentary. And so I realized these adults in this office are not going to take care of me. And because the principal stands her, we call him Smiling Just Matthews, because all Jesse Poo did was to smile and smile and smile. No matter what happened. he smiled. He said, well, you want integration? We're going to give you integration. We're going to send you nine different ways, right? Instead of putting you together as a group.
0: It seems like the entire community within reach of each other was against this. Yeah, not Pretty the much. not the black community, but the white community. Pretty much, and there are these.
1: There were people. Get it now. I want. I do want to make this clear. There had to be people who were not, and people who were Christians. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting, here, I'd be dead. Yeah, I'd be really dead. And because um, at night, when the Klan rode to our houses and whatnot, there there are people who helped. There are people who gave us food because you know, after a while, you're right. The community wanted to strip off us any privilege. They stopped giving stuff at Christmas. They took away any jobs they could. They threatened to take away my mother's teaching job, and they did. I mean, yeah, they played dirty pool, no question about it. And, s- and we were in great peril. They were because, you know, I'd look out of the window of the, of the school, which was huge. Again, eight square blocks in diameter, seven stories high, and you'd see a rope hanging from a tree. You know, we're going to hang one of you today. And the kids inside would say, two, four, six, eight. We ain't gonna integrate. They just scream that all day.
0: Yeah. And so there are these tiny pockets of allies, but I don't mm-hmm. think it's three a, people here, three people
1: there. Three yeah, people I don't everywhere. think it's significant, yeah, significant funny,
0: enough yeah. to, to really instill hope. And there are these <laughs>
1: no, 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 no. These were rare people who you ran into. First of all, if they helped you visibly, they'd be in danger. Yeah. They risk that they helped you at the risk of their own life.
0: And the voices that seem to support you are far away.
1: Far away. They're
0: in D.C. or they're judges that you'll never see.
1: That I'll never see. They'll
0: never be able to put their hand on your shoulder and say, keep going. No, 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 no. no. And so my question is, I imagine that the first day, the first week, you feel like, well, this is the initial reaction. It's got to get better, right?
1: Mm -mm, You feel like go home and stay home because you're going to die. Okay. There's just a matter of time. It is not now. If you're going to die, it's when you're going to die. And it's real soon because every day there are people uh, circling with hang ropes. People visibly have guns in school. Uh, People visibly have knives in school. So nobody's playing here. This is not a game. And just the look on some of those kids' faces, just the look on some of those kids' faces told you. I am here to do serious, serious business. And I got the kind of fear in my stomach that I had never felt before and may never feel again. Because I knew that, you know, when you know that you're standing at the edge of murder and you're you're it, it's a different feeling than anything you've ever had. It would serve me, by the way, later on in life to have learned what that feeling is and to be able to cope with it day after day after day, but I now I'm pissed at God. I think you know why has God put me here? What are we going to do? And it well, certainly wasn't evident that our parents could help us at all. I stopped even telling them. We stopped talking to them. They couldn't help you. In we the grocery only talked store. to each other, right? We couldn't. I mean, we only talked to each other, and so um, it was clear in that beginning week that we weren't going to make it. Now, a couple of weeks go by, a week goes by, and, Pre- and President Eisenhower sends the 101st Airborne, and the only hope I ever had inside that school was when those armed soldiers arrived, because they, too, were serious. They were World War II heroes, and they were some serious dudes. They came in town. They popped their tents up in the backyard of Central High School. They had their bayonets on the ends of their guns, and they were, they were just, you know, they were incredible soldiers, and there was no question in your mind. The first day I saw them with their uh, their jeeps and their helicopters overhead, the first day I went to school, I went to school with a helicopter overhead, riding in a jeep with two, I me mean, riding in a station with a jeep in front with a turret gun on it and a jeep in back with a turret gun on it. Now, there you go. There's a way to go to school. Wow. And so, and the first day I walked up the front of those stairs of that school, I was surrounded by, I think it's 14 soldiers. So
0: if there is no hope, if it doesn't feel like it's ever going to get better, where did the courage or faith to keep going or grit, whatever the motivating factor is, to keep going come from? And why? Why did you keep coming back?
1: Because when it was in September, Martin Luther King came down. And uh, he came to check on us. And I was in this basement of the president of the NAACP in in her playroom waiting for him to come. And he entered the room. And it was an experience that is unbelievable in the sense that he was different from other human beings. We're not all alike, not really, in the sense of who we are and who we develop ourselves to become. And this man was something beyond most human beings that I will ever meet. The only person I could compare meeting him with was meeting Mother Teresa, to tell you the truth. He talked very slow. He was very calm. And before he said anything, he stopped and looked at each of us in the eye. And I miss smackaboo. You know, I miss talk really fast. Tell me what you want. Hi there. Let's get to it. And he just looked me in the eye, and I started out with my complaining. Somebody put the ass in my eyes, and I don't like. This. I don't want to go home. And he just looked at me, and he said, "Hey, Melba, don't be selfish. You're not doing this for yourself, but for generations yet unborn." Wow. And I thought, wow! Nobody ever said that, really. You know, nobody, my parents talked to me about, you know, if I did this, I could probably get into a college somewhere else. But nobody said, you know, if you do this, it means that these schools across the South are going to integrate. And you're doing this to give opportunity to other black kids in other cities everywhere. You're doing this to break down a barrier, Melba. You know? And so then I was embarrassed and I shut up and that one statement would live with me forever. It was hard statement because it meant that I could no longer complain that I was going to do without a prom because who cared? Anything that I was going to do without could not be measured up to what I could gain for other students. So I had to grow up. But getting there, Rather than think of how I could get out, I started to focus on how I could stay in.
0: And you weren't able to graduate from Central High School, no, because it, it, I might be remembering wrong, but because the governor literally shut down the school at one point, right?
1: That's correct. See, so I was a I was a eleventh uh, grader, and so he shut down the school the next year. This is uh, I went to Central High School fifty seven to fifty eight. And then 58, 59, he shut the doors. And that made us really popular because he shut all the black schools and all the white schools. So now we have a situation where our black friends don't like us. They didn't like us anyway because they were losing their jobs. People were bombing their houses. Their life was misery, total misery. Now you got a situation where they don't got no school. And guess whose fault that is? Our fault. So we were not popular. Uh, to say that we were unpopular and we had no friends would be a shortcoming. We only had each other. And that's when you're a teenager, that's a sad thing to have. We only had the nine of us. Now, one historian has come through and said that the nine of us are blood-related, which is probably true. But to this day, we're 76, 77, and 75. We're all close. We all call each other, one of, only one of us has died that would be Jefferson and the rest of us are here.
0: And so when you, when that chapter forcefully came to an end, were you aware that what you had done would ripple through history or did you feel like, well, this was a failure or?
1: I didn't feel anything. I felt, I just wanted to get away. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't care at this point, I was nuts. I was like, how would you like to be chased for three, all the days of the school year? And at this point, I was just, I went out. And we had been someone to take a national tour. I got to travel around the country. At the point at which school ended at Central High School, I had other shocks coming. I just wanted out. I didn't know that I'd done anything. I didn't know that I'd be in history books. I didn't care. My soul, somebody walked on my soul with a pair of football cleats. And there's no explaining to you how I felt. I felt tired, exhausted, torn up. One of us had gotten expelled. I missed her, she was my best friend. I felt like I'd been damaged somehow. And I, I didn't know if I could ever collect myself back together. You know, I didn't know who Melba was anymore. Is she the Little Rock Nine who's gonna be interviewed every five minutes by the press and followed around and pictures taken her? who is this girl? The other thing that happened, which was jolting was, that we were taken out of Little Rock on a national tour to the White House, to the Statler Hilton Hotel. First place I was taken was to the Statler Hilton Hotel in New York. Do you know what that hotel looked like? Do you know what my house looked like? My house was this little shack, very nice for the black people of that era, but a tiny, maybe 900, 800 square foot little shack with minimal amenities. And somebody takes you to the Statler Hilton Hotel the house could fit into my bedroom there. Mm -hmm. The most beautiful interior I've ever seen, the silverware, the plates, and then remembering what it was like to have a limousine service parked in front. I wanted to go someplace, I'd pick up a phone. If I wanted food, I'd pick up a phone. Now, the contrast of this, because what I was getting to see was, while I was back in Little Rock being black, there were some black folks up north who were living very well, Lena Horn being one of them, because we met her personally. The head of the Chicago Defender being the others. That was the only black national newspaper, okay? The head of Ebony Magazine living not only on a beautiful lake that he had pawned out, but with a beautiful summer house that looked like the Bank of America. But I thought, wait a minute. God, I mean, whose turn is it to be... Black and and rich. I mean, come on. I mean, what's going on here, you know? And by the time I went home, which was at the end of the summer, I was burned to a crisp. And I said to my grandmother, you know, and she lectured me about not putting any emphasis on things, material things, you know. But by then, my head was turned, and I was really, really fluffed. And that whole experience had turned into something incredible. And eventually, I would be, by the way, adopted by a white family who were Quakers. My father, my adopted father founded Sonoma State University. He was a teacher. And they're very down-to-earth farmers, nice people, who I would stay with all my life. I mean, they're still, you know, I still call my sisters and brothers every day, and da 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 My parents have died since, but uh, every day I think of that mom as well as my black mom. So I had a weird outcome of that, you know. The very people, get this, the NAACP had to get us out of Arkansas in the 1959-1960 year because the, after we'd been out of school for a year, I was staying home. Uh, They had to get us out of Arkansas because the Ku Klux Klan said 10,000 dead and 5,000 alive on our heads. That doesn't sound like a lot now, but in that era, $10,000 would buy you a house, a car, and whatever else you wanted. Mm. And so they called for help, and people who wanted to take us in came and did so. And therefore, uh, I ended up here in California with a white family in Santa Rosa, California.
0: And so Central High School isn't where the story ends, because obviously you you come to California.
1: Yeah. You
0: pursue education as far as you can to a doctorate. Right. And you start immediately writing, taking the writing that you probably did
1: teaching. First thing I did was get married and have Kelly, my baby daughter, and uh, to start a family. And then my mother was on my case. And she said, white, you know, white folks can do without school, black folks cannot, you will go back to school, you will get your education. She was totally all over me, like wait on rice. I mean, she was like spun, spun, you know. And so I did what she said. And uh, she was corrected that it certainly armed me to get a decent job and all that, you know.
0: And so I'm curious, we have a lot of artists and writers in our audience, and what are the big life lessons that you drew from that experience as you navigated the world, expressing yourself and trying to, with the book Expose Yourself that you wrote, trying to help the next generation of artists? And what are the big things that you cling to that you want to teach people who want to express themselves, the things that help carry you through the life of an artist, which on its own is a hard journey.
1: That, that there is something valuable and unique about who you are, no matter who it is. So see that and value that. Do not de- devalue who you are in any way, shape or form. No matter what your name is or what you look like or how much you weigh or how much you don't weigh or what the color of your eyes are, you have a story to tell and you have valuable information and valuable skills that if you share will be appreciated. So you first have to appreciate that the product that you're offering, the piece of art that you're offering, is going to serve somebody and be worthwhile. And decide decide that that's so. Even if you have to sit down and think one day, well, who's this going to do any good for, you know? Then that gives you some more energy from your muse to move ahead, you know? And then, once again, it's what grandmother said to me, is that, It doesn't matter what anybody thinks about you. That's not important. It's what you think about yourself and what your God thinks about you. You know how you live in your life, not call. She used to say, you know, when I'd say people call me names today, they call me nigger, they call me this, she'd say, aha, I told them to call you rich, and if they do that, will coins jingle in your pocket? (laughs)
0: I love that.
1: And so, uh, so what difference does it make? What does calling in person a name? What what the, does it, does that get you down? Does that really? I remember when I went to my physician's office when I was getting ready to go off to Columbia University to become a, a journalist, and I said to him, "I'm going to become. I'm leaving. I loved my doctor. Loved him. Very sweet white man, old German man, who had taken good care of me because I'd had a lot of lung problems, and he'd been very sweet up to then. But I said, "I want to tell you goodbye. I'm leaving. I'm going to New York. I'm going to Columbia University." I'm going to be a journalist. And he said, oh, Melba, you're overweight and you're black. You'll never be a journalist. If you're going to be sane in this world, you have to settle down and accept things as they are. Really? Two years later, he was inviting me to his house to show people he knew me because I was an NBC newscaster right here in San Francisco, California, on the air five days a week. I moved my membership to another doctor's office. But he was calling and inviting me to come to his house to dinner so his friends would know that he knew me. No, I'm unavailable, boo, right? And so for me, most of my life, all of my life, there's nothing you can tell me that I can't be. If you tell me I can't do it, I was a, I was a cowgirl as a news reporter. Don't assign me to do apron stories and knitting and crocheting when the boys, I see those boys out there doing murders and, and they're doing the big stories. Don't do that to me. You know, I resent terribly that you treat me and you categorize me. You can't categorize me as a female and say, okay, well, you're going to do that kind of news story. Go over there, honey, child, and do those quilts. And Yeah, you know, I know they tried a lot of that. No, no, not me. I'm on the next plane out of here doing what I want to do that is just as, you know, and, and I will ride you, see, till you tell me that I can have that assignment to do that crime story. So therefore, I did a lot of great stuff when I was in New York. I did Patty Hearst. I did the attempt to shoot President Ford. I did a lot of murders and a lot of, you know, harsh stories because I refused to be the little Miss woman at home, you know. No, no, no. And so that's how I've been all my life. Don't tell me what I can't do. That's what I'm going to do.
0: How do you teach your kids or people who you're speaking to on how to find that inner strength, that grit to keep going, not to listen to other people? What do you say to them?
1: That only what God thinks of you is important. And I tell them that, you know, God loves you, thinks you're precious the way you are. God created you right? And there's purpose to everybody who's walking. And so you are needed. You have to, you're needed. Who you've become is needed in the world. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here. So don't let anybody stop you. If you want to be it and you are sincerely committed, you will do it. God be committed now. That does not imply that God's going to sweep you up like an angel one day and you'll become what it is. It means that you're going to do hard work. And you're going to learn the steps to what you want to be. And then you're going to take them.
0: And what other values do you feel like are important to pass on to to your kids, to young people?
1: Do one, to others as you'd have them do unto you. Don't, don't go around slighting other people. Because the thing, the problem with that is, don't tell jokes about other races or other people who have handicaps or anything. Because the problem with that is, until we are all free, none of us are free. So as long as there's one enslaved, one mistreated person on the planet. That's who you are. So careful with how you treat others, I tell them. And I tell them that no matter what it looks like at this moment, you know, I have bad days. We all do. I have those kinds of days where, you know, my car keys are missing, my bills are not paid. What am I going to do about this, that, or the other? I'm adding up my debts. I can't make the cut. We all have bad days. And on those days, I walk around saying God loves me. He definitely loves me. Oh, yeah. My picture's on God's refrigerator still. And after a while saying that, you say to yourself the rest of that sentence, God loves me, and so that means that. Melba, you know, God loves me. So, I mean, I think you have to have a religion that you believe in because remaining human and being human and, and surviving on the planet is not an easy task. And it requires your every day. We all have addictions at one point or another. I've been fighting the weight addiction forever. I'll go down to a very thin person and then you look up and I ballooned, you know. And so anytime I can catch myself and keep myself from seeing anything in the way of praising God, I try to stop that. But we're all working on perfection, you know, working towards the perfection and the things and people that I meet in the world that show me where I stand is important. When I was a news reporter, I met Mother Teresa and it was a great, I'll share with you. I was in Pacific Heights, which is a really beautiful, elegant area here where rich people live. And I was covering this story and I was sent to cover her. And I got to this beautiful house that apparently they had just donated to her. And I walked downstairs in the front of the house, and oh my God, front entryway is this carpeting. I thought, oh, look at the walls, the paintings and all this stuff. I got up to the third floor and there was Mother Teresa in her allness and her wonder, and she greeted me and with her smile and everything, and she was on her hands and knees and they were pulling up carpeting. My God, pulling up that carpet? Why are they pulling up that carpet? And you know what Mother Teresa said? She said, That she didn't want, she couldn't spend the time that would take to care for the carpet. That was time that could be devoted to feeding the hungry and taking care of her business with the Lord. See, and that's the day I said to myself, "Well, now, Melba, you're never going to be Mother Teresa, but you can work towards some sort of perfection somewhere." You know, so I think we all just have to try to work toward whatever we see is, is our own perfection. And I think every day I have, you know, every year I make a mandala, which is a thing where you cut pictures out of magazines to say, what are you going to do with this year? I think we all have to have goals.
0: I have one of those.
1: Yeah, every year I make one. Every year around New Year's, I invite friends over and I gather tons of magazines and I clip pictures out, you know, and I... So you got you to gotta have some sort of plan. He who fails to plan, plans to fail. You know? And it's not always going to work. Mine failed beautifully.
0: Mine already has some failures. But but, huge. Yeah.
1: Huge, huge failures. But I just say, oh well, uh, you know what? I need to try another road. Praise God. Please give me more guidance. God, it means I'm not meditating enough. I'm not praying loud enough and long enough. I'm not listening to the universe. I'm I'm I've got Melba's plans. There's always two sets of plans going on: Melba's plans and God's plans. And what I always have to be careful about is making sure I tap into God's plans because my plans don't always match, you know?
0: Yeah, I I'm a, I like to plan at least the big vision.
1: Oh, yeah, and then I just sail out the door and go towards it, don't you? Just with all energy.
0: And when the plan doesn't work, I like to think of plans as a tool. Right. And when the plan doesn't work, it's like using the wrong size wrench to turn a bolt. It is. And so when the plan doesn't work, Change the fucking plan, make it a different tool. That's
1: right. You have to change and you have to you do have to listen. See, I think one of the problems is is that we get so involved in our making our own plans that we don't listen. There is a purpose for all of us. There really is. And there really is a God plan for all of us. I do now believe that. And I think at seventy-six I would know. See. At seventy-six years of age, you begin to know certain things. And what I know at seventy-six is um Melville's not in charge. This is very difficult. I work on this every single day because we begin to think we're in charge as parents, as people. We think, oh, we're, we're head of the committee. No, we're not. No, 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 no. And that is such a startling realization and an unhappy realization. I can't handle it, God. What do you mean I can't make things go the way I want? What do you mean my kids are not doing what I want them to do? Ugh! What do you mean they can't see that my last lecture was filled with golden words?
0: I want to be respectful of your time, but I have a few more questions. Go ahead. Yeah. So one is you're on the extreme end of the spectrum of being wronged. You have justified resentments if you chose to justify them. And to anyone out there who has truly been a victim of awfulness, how do you continue to heal, to forgive, to find hope and to not be jaded and still have love?
1: Well, because, you know, what a great question. Is that no matter how deeply you're wronged, grandmother said you can choose two routes. You can be really angry. It's just like eating lemons. You know what I mean? Who do the lemons sour? You, your mouth. And sometimes, most of the time, the other person who you're having the grudge against doesn't even know you have it and don't care. And so you can either be filled with resentment or filled with hope. And you be, it's probably sweeter that you choose hope because resentment and holding sourness doesn't uh, mean anything. You know, like I have spasms resulting from my early spine surgery. In the first few days of the spasms that I have, I thought, ah, you know, I'm so angry at the doctor. But no, I'm not. You know, it just is, you know. And you can't be. I'm not angry at anybody at Central High School. I mean, I, I don't think of people often receive me when I give speeches and they think, oh, she's going to be a bear. No, I'm not. Um, You know, yes, I I didn't like and wasn't comfortable with the white people in the mobs. But don't forget, beginning at 16 and 17, I have white parents. And my father's six feet, four inches tall with reddish blonde hair, blue eyes, whom I adored. My mom's petite with brown hair and brown eyes, uh, whom I love with all my heart. All my heart. Because here are people who took me to their home Loved me, cared for me, and put me on the right track toward adulthood. So what am I going to say? They're my brothers and my sisters. I have three sisters and a brother. Well, excuse me. They provided a home for me.
0: One of our patrons, somebody who actually helps pay for this program, wanted to know, and I feel like it's partly answered, but wanted to know when some some of the prejudice and hate is very visible still.
1: Oh, every day.
0: Do you worry about us regressing? Do you think it's possible? Or do you think that us as Americans are going to one day get to a point to where equality feels real for everyone?
1: Look, I think what's going on now will ultimately probe to be a gift. There is no question in my mind that we're regressing. Um, I went to Little Rock, Arkansas in September for the reunion of the Little Rock Nine. And I had to be guarded by three layers of police, not just the local police, but you know, like the FBI. I mean, I I remember at one point I went to the party, and I and I was in this big auditorium, and I was tired of signing books, tired of smiling, and I and I told my caregiver, "Let's find a party that is isolated, so I can at least sit down and get up without somebody asking me for anything." And I don't look good smiling with my pants down around my ankles, so. We found this really isolated party, and when I stepped out of it, there were nine cops standing out there, because that's how many people were following me. In terms of making progress, are going backwards right now, I think to some extent, who left the dogs out? There's no question but what uh, the current administration and currently where we are is a roll backwards. On the other hand, it, it's also a blessing, because it awakened all of us. What were we doing that we had this election that we let it go this way? And isn't it wonderful that it brings all the pus and the undergoom goom out in our society? This existed no matter who'd be president or who was the, the administration. And so it's lovely to have all this loose so we can deal with it. That's the blessing of it. And there's no question about what we are rolling something backward. I told you as I went to Arkansas for this reunion, we Little Rock Nine had to be guarded guarded and and I had so many policemen on my heels and uh, that it was unbelievable but um and it felt weird to be down there uh what 60 years later and 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 enough white people hate you that they're going to kill you and 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 you got you can't walk around your hotel and there's a special room your kids have to go in and it, thank god when my boys went out one night to play they thought they were going out to socialize Police picked them right away up and brought them back So, no, 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 no. There's no doubt that we're moving back. But I cannot be torn down by anything like that because I've come too far to turn around. You know, my grandmother used to say the road is heavy and it's steep and the load, the load is awful. But get with the program and march forward. That's why my book is called that. And so life has taught me that um, not to fear. So I'm moving forward. Everybody's moving forward. Nobody, no, I don't know any Black people or, or Asian people or Spanish people, uh, Latinos that are going to take bull corn at this point. We all fought for the war. We all have contributed. Now is this golden year time, meaning we're all not going to wait. What do people think? We all going to roll over and go back to our individual countries? I don't think so. And so it's okay. We will find a new way to make it to the goal. And it just is a momentary inconvenience. I may not see it, I'm 76 years of age, but there are people who come behind me who will not, will not tolerate. And there are enough white people around who have seen the results of inequality, bless their little hearts, that they are not gonna take, so I'm good.
0: This is how I like to end the program, but. It's it's a twist on it, but if you in the hardest time of your life, whenever you chose that to be, could get a phone call, and you answer it, and it's you now on the other line, what would you want to tell that person? Note in to that self,
1: moment? Melba. Note to self, sweetheart. It hurts so badly now, but the visual picture that you thinks in front of you. It's not really, it's not real. This pain is not real because with the help of God, you can make it go away, turn around. Always know that you have the same strength and the same determination in you that you had when you went to Central High School. And look at the outcome of Central High School. It took 50 years for you to realize what you were doing and why. And that same thing applies to whatever you do today. It will take years to understand the outcome. But that's okay because you know it's all good. It's all good.
0: And march forward.
1: Exactly. You cannot sit in this world. You have no choice but to march forward. You know, The other book I've written recently, by the way, is called I Will Not Fear. And it's a summary of my life. And in this book, I tell you, here are the reasons. Here are the things that's happened to me in my life that make me know that there is God. Don't question it. Because every time I've been in the tightest spot ever, in walks something weird that rescues me. And I know there's God.
0: Thank you for being a part of this.
1: Oh, my pleasure. My blessing. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. That's the end. And it's impossible to follow that conversation up. So I'm just going to say, I hope some of Melba's strength and optimism carries into your day. Thank you for listening and I will see you next week.